Hey, what's going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of About Abroad, where it's my job to introduce you to people who have built amazing lives for themselves in various foreign corners of the globe. We're talking with expats and thought leaders about moving abroad, remote work, visas, and all the fun and practical knowledge that you need to know to follow in their footsteps. If you've ever dreamed of making a life for yourself overseas, maybe working remotely or embracing long-term travel, retiring or studying abroad, or even just taking a peek inside life beyond your borders, you've landed in the right place. This episode is brought to you by my friends over at eResidency of Estonia. If you're a globetrotting digital nomad, expat, freelancer, or somebody with a business, whether that's just you or an aspiring unicorn like some of the many other unicorns that have come out of Estonia, then look at eResidency of Estonia the next time you're thinking about where to establish your business. eResidency is a digital identity issued by the Republic of Estonia, which is in the European Union, to foreign nationals, that means non-Estonians, giving them digital access to the country's advanced online infrastructure and open business environment. And when I say advanced, I mean advanced. They've been doing digital for decades. E-residents can start a company 100% online from wherever they are in the world, run it remotely, open business bank accounts, and even submit their annual reports all with their electronic ID card. It's literally international business without borders for location-independent entrepreneurs, perfect for the About Abroad audience. The next time you're thinking about where to establish your business, look at e-residency of Estonia via the link in the show notes. Okay, now back to the episode. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by my friend Igor from the beautiful island of Bali, Indonesia. You've probably heard of Bali, or maybe if you listen to this podcast, you've been there and spent many, many months there. But Igor's story is quite different. He's actually made it his home uh, for over a decade now and has some hilarious stories to tell about living in Bali, but also just some really practical information about how to make Bali your home for six months, a year, a decade, whatever it may be. And we just get back down into why it is that Bali is so popular around the world. It's one of the hot spots for digital nomads, probably the number one hot spot for digital nomads and a growing expat community and beautiful culture and jungles and beaches and just so much to explore there that we hadn't really gotten into much on the show because typically when it comes up, it comes up in the sense of someone just kind of passing through there, spending a month in Chengdu and then just moving on. So I really wanted to dive into Bali and see what it is that makes this one of those places that everyone around the world knows where it is and wants to go spend some time there. So Igor does a great job taking us inside Bali and talking about his experience calling it home. Please help me in welcoming Igor to About Abroad. Igor, how's it going? Welcome to About Abroad. Hey, Chase. Good to hear you. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Man, it's been a really long time. Um, I feel like we, we've known each other for quite a while and communicate, communicate off to a good start, communicate very often uh, via email, but it's rare that we get to hop on a call together and, uh, and even more rare that we get to talk about something as exciting as life in Bali. Totally. Yeah. Um, I feel like I've known you for ages, but we've only really spent probably um, less than a few hours together in person and uh, definitely an equal amount on, on video. But hey, that's uh, our current situation and uh, it's as good as it gets. I'm, I'm happy to be here and sharing um, our life journeys. <laughs> that's right. Actually, when you so you mentioned the couple hours together in person, that was uh, that was several years ago. We met up in the the first time we met in the Pyrenees at a conference and we did some some barbecuing and uh, over a fire with our respective CEOs at the time, right? Yeah, yeah, the beautiful, um, beautiful event in Spain, and uh, it was it's an amazing experience. I have great memories of it, working and traveling combined. Not a bad way to kick off the the friendship um, for sure. So that uh, that was a lot of fun. Well, um, I'm really looking forward to the conversation today for multiple reasons. Uh, one of which is you're living in Bali, which is, I believe, the place that over the course of doing this show that has probably come up the most um, because I've had so many digital nomads on here and it's like the digital nomad hotspot. But you have a bit of a different story 
um, because you actually live there and have been there for quite a long time. So I don't actually know the background of it. I don't know how long you've been there, how you got there. Uh, if I'm actually correct in saying that you fully live there, but that's my perception. And the, and the other piece to this is that I have somehow never been to Bali. So I literally know very little except what everybody tells me. So I have a ton to learn. Um, I imagine the audience does too. And, and I'm sure you're the, the perfect person to, to fill in the blanks. So um, that's my that's where I'm coming from in this conversation. And uh, I thought it would be a great kind of like a, a way to introduce yourself and kind of let the people know uh, who you are and, and how you got there. If you could just kind of back up and kind of say where you started in life and, and how you kind of came here to, uh, to, to be in Bali. Yeah, definitely. Well, I, I hope uh, after this recording that yourself and some of the listeners will be more inclined to come to Bali, but also to understand that it's not really for everyone to necessarily live the way I've been living here. Um, so uh, just to kind of roll back in time, I am Russian, uh, but I grew up in London and I was graduating in 2008, uh, which was the year of the financial crisis. Um, it was extremely difficult to get a job. Uh, I had a business degree and uh, London is very competitive, especially uh, in business and sales jobs. And so I started to really look for volunteer positions at that, that time just to get myself um, busy with something. Um, and I and I got recruited by a coral conservation charity, which uh, is very different from business or any of the companies that I was looking at, like, you know, BPs and shells. And um, but I really liked what they are in for uh, saving you know, the world's uh, natural resources, especially something as fragile as coral. Um, but they have marketing department and uh, I was recruited to do sales and marketing and events. And essentially I wasn't getting paid but I was promoting these expeditions to uh, exotic countries and locations, specifically to gap year students who would want to go and experience you know, a new country, but then also um, get some certification through that. And I wasn't getting paid for it, but I, but I was learning a ton. And uh, I, I fell in love uh, you know, in theory of Asia without ever um, having been there before. I just love the tropics, you know, I love all the pictures and that, that whole sales story, you know, was constantly in my mind. So I was like, well, if these guys found me useful, you know, and I really felt like my sales and marketing um, degree kind of helped in the world of sustainability, as opposed to going to some, you know, petrochemical industry, which was meant to be my path. Um, I thought that maybe by going to Asia, I would maybe actually be able to find similar companies like this that may find me valuable. Um, as opposed to, you know, just getting constant, um, you know, failures through all of my CV applications in London for the corporate world. And so I just wrote to a couple of friends of mine. Uh, one of them was living in Thailand and I went over and I went over for a couple of months. Uh, and so I actually ended up meeting people who lived there. And I was like, wow, how do you how do you live here? How do you how can you live in such a beautiful place? I, I love Thailand. I, I traveled through the country and. You know, some of them had, um, a lot of them had various stories, but most of them had something similar that um, they had a way to earn money remotely without relying on Thailand. Now, back then, you know, remote wasn't a thing, but these were mainly designers, um, you know, like creative people that just needed their device. And I was like, well, this is not really what my skill set is. Um, so I went back to London and I just made myself a goal. Uh, that I need to move to Asia and I'll find a job, no matter no matter like how, but I'll find a job um, because I can't do it remotely. So I'll have to go to a country that's slightly more developed. And some of my friends were in Bali and, you know, they told me, oh, look, it's such a small island, but there are like 14 international schools. You know, it's really good infrastructure. You should come here. And so uh, I made that goal come true. I bought a ticket, uh, just a one-way ticket to Bali to, to, to see what um, what it's like. And uh, two weeks later, I, I got a sales and marketing job at a um, at international school. Um, funny enough, they, they did have a sales and marketing department. But um, a year later, I left that and uh, I fell in love with Bali so much that like I was finding for ways to, to stay, you know, and then I, I rolled on to other things to do. But um, so since 2009, um, I have been here pretty much full time. Wow. <laughs> I didn't even realize that we have we have so many little uh, little things in common there. I also graduated with a business degree in 08, right in the middle of the uh, financial crisis. And 
I was uh, I was going into the financial industry, <laughs> and uh, it was just it was it was a very odd time to be graduating. Prospects were thin, and uh, it, it was not super invigorating <laughs> to look at the the job options. Uh, I'm glad it worked out for you, and you landed in in such a cool place. That's a uh, that's a lot more fortunate than a lot of people that that landed that were looking for something in in 08. Even if you weren't getting paid, you ended up in a in a cool place. You know, the the, the funny thing is, like, I I didn't know anything about Bali except from reading about it and reading about it like very deeply, right? So I pretty much like researched every single thing, and I realized, okay, there are three job agencies. They need some foreigners. Um, I probably have a good chance of printing out my CVs and just doing around. Uh, of these job centers rather than doing the same in London. And that's how I got my job. And, uh, <laughs> you know, back then, it, 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 everything, everything unraveled very fast. But yeah, I, the school was um, with a sustainable approach. So it's actually like, the, it's called Green School. It's now pretty much uh, an international brand. They have schools all over the world, but this was the first Green School. Um, and so I, I just felt really use, useful with my skills. And I, and I knew that whatever I was doing, it wasn't killing the environment or producing some plastic products. Uh, we were breeding a new, a new type of um, generation that would be um, sustainable, sustain, you know, focused on sustainability, um, sort of like global citizens. And I, I really, really felt useful. But, you know, I, I grew so many connections during that time that it, wasn't, it didn't become an issue for me to find a way to stay here after I quit. Yeah, the green school is something that just came across my radar recently, actually. And um, I know you weren't, you, it wasn't like, this isn't like a big focus of your life. It was a sh- short period overall, but it's a very cool concept. And actually, could I wonder if you could elaborate on it a little bit for, for somebody who's not familiar with it. Yeah, so uh, it's a um, alternative education school, uh, an alternative meaning that they have a gravitas towards other subjects that conventional schools don't have, such as uh, green studies, um, global awareness. Um, a lot of their education is based on the Rudolf Steiner system, which is used. It, it's similar to Montessori, but Rudolf Steiner is like a separate system. And none of those schools have been sort of like accepted on the international arena. You know, it's really for those experimental families that, you know, don't want their kids to go through conventional schooling. And so Green School was really striving, along with many other schools, to be internationally recognized. And to become that, you need to have a certain percentage of conventional subjects like mathematics, history, and science um, within the daily the daily um, timetable. And so uh, they had strike this balance. And the Cambridge certification uh, body had been coming over to Green School year after year to see whether they're ready to be internationally proclaimed. And so Green School, when I was there um, for the first time, became um, internationally recognized alternative education school, right? And so that basically propelled it to a next level where they increased massively the the tuition fees um, and they started to attract basically affluent families that have you know property in Southeast Asia um, and they don't want their kids to just go to like halogen sort of lit, lit classrooms. Um, green school is all entirely made of bamboo. Um, the old classrooms, uh, they don't have any right. We're 90 degree angles. You know, everything is curvy. It's all around these gardens where the kids can go and learn to grow their own vegetables and then go eat them at lunch. And back then the school was only, I think there were 120 kids. And, uh, by the time I left, it was 420. Um, so I'd spent wow. two years there and it basically like three X in the, in, in the amount of kids that they had there. Uh, but the atmosphere was really something special. You know, the kids, they are very open. Um, a lot of kids that came, they had sort of like dyslexia problems or, or some other learning disability issues. And uh, through being in green school and in that open and collaborative environment where it's really sort of community centric, uh, they uh, ended up being much more relaxed with their you know, issues that they had had in, in first world countries and in conventional schools. And they had been studies on the green school effect on those kind of kids. Um, Green School had a lot of supporting teachers just for kids to open up. Uh, Experiential learning is when, say, they do mathematics and instead of just coming to the whiteboard, they literally bring in five coconuts and put them together and be like, how many is that? You know, and then take one Mm -hmm. away. It's really like hands-on and a lot of uh, community fusion, right? So they would bring in uh, local children to teach them on like kite making. And so... Um, it was very unique. It was a very unique experience. And, and to this day, Green School is, um, well, it's, it's a very proclaimed, proclaimed place. And now they've launched schools in New Zealand, I think, and also in, in California. But 
my role essentially was to bring in new kids. And the way I would do that is I launched um, a sister organization inside of Green School called Green Camp, where you could have children that are not part of the curriculum, They're maybe coming for a few months to Bali or even a few weeks to come in and spend some time in this beautiful space in the jungle, you know, in these massive bamboo bamboo structures. Like to give you to give you a perspective, yeah, the the central building of the school it was uh, comprised of nine spirals of bamboo, with uh, a total length of thirty kilometers of bamboo. So it's a real sort of like you know bamboo palace, and and so. Other kids could experience that for coming for one or two days and we would sell these day programs for them and then they would be like, mom, that school is so awesome. How can, how can we, I want to go to school like that. And, and that would be essentially a sales funnel for us to get more kids into the school. But um, <laughs> for me, for me, it was just uh, it's totally different from my life in London. And uh, yeah, it was an amazing experience. I, I totally recommend anyone to just visit, visit the location here in Bali for Green School. Yeah, it's a, it's such a cool concept, and um, and and I think there's also isn't there an element of it where you can like you could move between like you could move the kids between the schools like uh, if you you know for a family that has home in Bali and a home somewhere else like they could move back and forth kind of seamlessly or is am I incorrect there? Could be. I, so I I left the school in uh, twenty ten or eleven. Uh, yeah, so it's been a while. Uh, after that, after that, I believe they had. A, lots of awesome programs uh yeah maybe, maybe something like that yeah yeah well i think I, the, the reason i ask is i think it's like uh one of these emerging things that uh you and i come across a lot in the future of work remote work kind of thing is like people are getting more access to freedom of location and one of the things that quote unquote holds a lot of people back is like oh but i have kids in school and so i'm seeing these organizations trying to adapt to that and and find solutions for the mobile family, um, which is a, a growing demographic. Oh. And so I believe I read something about the green school really trying, you know, they obviously they're very forward thinking, they're, they're thinking outside the box and it seems like something they would try to, to tackle. So, um, anyway, yeah, it's, I, I'm interested in learning more about this and, uh, it came up here unexpectedly. So I, I thought I'd ask, but that's yeah. what's, what's wild to me though, is like you, you found Bali uh, at a time, you know, 12, we're talking 12, 13 years ago. I don't know that it was the household name then that it is today. I mean, like I said, this sh this is probably the place that comes up the most on this show as just a, a place where people have gone and spend months. You know, I ask people, where's your favorite place in the world? Oh, I love Bali. Um, but I don't think it was that the case when, when you discovered it, you know, over a decade ago. Is that fair to say? Uh, absolutely. You know, Bali was not in the international arena, but when I got here, I realized that I'm like a latecomer because apparently mm. good stuff happened uh, in the 80s, <laughs> you know, oh, and now okay. it's <laughs> and roads and it kind of already felt like I was late back then, only to realize that, you know, something massive is just about to happen because Bali's uh, population is 4 million. And when I arrived, they were experiencing around about one and a half million tourists per year so you know still mostly local and uh just before the pandemic i believe the amount of tourists uh was 50 percent over bali's population annual amount wow. of tourists coming in so an explosion of course driven by social media and the whole you know co-working um remote work movement but um i was there i was there uh present on the first sort of like brainstorm just uh, on the whiteboard about um co-working by one of the green school parents and they went off to actually open a rent out a place in central Ubud uh, where they said, Hey, you can come in and work and you kind of like have membership. It really seemed really odd at that time, but um, fast forward a few years, that was the first um, co-working space in Southeast Asia. Uh, it's called Ubud. Oh yeah. It's world famous now. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, yeah. that's, uh, that's green school, green school, um, uh, alumni <laughs> parents <laughs> yeah you were in on the ground level did you get like uh any shares or anything because that that would have been nice to get in on the ground floor of i think i did not buy in <laughs> i did not buy into the whole the whole story you know i was like how can you like you know work with people you don't know um super strange like i understand working from home um uh, you know and then of course when the co-working spaces are shut, like right now, you know, I just wish I could go and work in, in a, in a non-home environment just to give that, you know, that opportunity for people that think that working from home is a bit too much for them. But, you know, I just, it, it seemed 
like it's not going to work. Yeah, <laughs> at that time. yeah, it's funny. It's, I thought the same thing about co-living when I first heard about it and I was totally wrong. Like people, I was like, nobody's going to do that. You know, like people want their own space and you got to work. And the, I don't know if the co-living thing is really going to like blow up. And I'm just like totally wrong. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know if I was like really hardcore on that. It was just my general gut feeling like, ah, I don't know. And uh, yeah, totally, totally incorrect on that route. But um, it's uh, it's super interesting that you're you're there. It, we'll be right back to the show after a quick break for a note from our sponsor. This season is brought to you by my good friends over at Insured Nomads. They're the absolute best in the business when it comes to providing health, travel, and medical insurance for nomads, expats, and really just all forms of world travelers. I know insurance is often something that's overlooked when we're fantasizing about traveling the world, but it's absolutely necessity that we address this because often the policy you have in your home country isn't going to cover you while you're abroad. And it's also a requirement, as a lot of people may not realize, to actually buy private travel or expat insurance, as it's called sometimes, to obtain a visa or even enter certain countries. So fortunately, there are companies like Insured Nomads to help us with this. Not only do they have excellent coverage and great prices, but they're also providing a first-class experience with additional perks and best-in-class technology via their app. It's, a, it's an amazing experience. I can't recommend it enough. Now, this is a company that was built by world travelers for world travelers. So they know what it's like to find yourself in a difficult medical situation abroad, and they want to keep you from having that same bad experience. So the next time you're planning a trip abroad, whether it's for a week or a lifetime, check out Insured Nomads via the link in the show notes. Okay, now back to the episode. Do you... How do you feel like you're more of you're a, you know you're a local now? I mean, how does that you talk about the explosion in popularity and when you see your kind of home plastered across Instagram and and tons of people kind of coming through and I, I like I wonder as someone who's been there a long time and sort of before the boom, even if you weren't there in the '80s when it was uh, really unknown. Like, do you what what is your you know kind of honest assessment of of where it was and where it is now? Is it has it been a net positive or how do you feel about it? Um, you know, for me, the people ask me like, why, why are you in Bali? What do you like the most about it? Yeah, of course you have, you know, beautiful nature, but you have beautiful nature in other parts of Southeast Asia too. Similar, you know, canyons and exotic flowers and all of this. But really what makes it unique for me are the people and the culture here. Um, you know, first off, they have managed to preserve their sovereignty, the culture and their traditions and ceremonies the way they have been for the last 120 years. And that hasn't changed a bit, except now they have a little bit of like, you know, um, plastic inside of their their, their, their ceremonies and the, the, the costumes that they wear are maybe polyester and not, not all cotton, but everything else is exactly the same, right? So you're kind of like transported into this prehistoric, well, not prehistoric, but like something really ancient. Um, and you can be a part of it on a daily basis, especially living in central, Bali, where I am, uh, up in the hills, a um, place called Ubud. You know, it's full of um, Balinese people here, and it's very authentic. And, and, and through their culture and religion, um, it's Hindu. It's, it's, um, it's called uh, Adama Hindu, right? So it's really like Hindu-based, but it's their own fusion of animism and Hinduism. And when I say animism, that they believe, you know, in that there is spirit in everything, the spirit in the water, the spirit of, you know, the trees and all of, this, all of the different statues and figures they have. And, you know, it's a, it's a, temp, it's a island of thousand temples. Um, so there is meaning in everything. They put meaning in everything. They really care about how, you know, how are they going to be perceived, whether they're the way they're saying something or addressing themselves to the foreigner, you know, are they being polite or impolite? And there's just a lot of this awareness about everything they're doing. And of course, they're, you know, as, as, as Hinduists, being Hinduists, they're true believers in karma as well. So, you know, just being in that environment with those kind of people just, you know, felt for me completely right and very um, soft place where I'm not going to be judged, but it's also going to sort of remind me of some of the really important values in life. Um, and, you know, for the Balinese, you know, many of them are wealthy and they can send their kids, you know, to study in the US or anywhere abroad and they do that. But all those kids come back because they think that, well, most important is just family and being together and preserving the land that you have. And this is really amazing to see, you know, so in terms of values, 
few of them have, you know, oh, I really want to get like a flashy car. You know, all they want to have is just as many ceremonies as possible with their family and just to eat as much food as possible. And that's all they really want. <laughs> and so, you know, what's all the foreigners that were coming here back in like end of 90s, I guess, 2000 would get um, met by this culture and you cannot resist but to study it with more detail. And of course, you need to learn language. By learning language, you get sort of closer to the culture. And so we were all like everyone that's been in Bali for 10 years or arrived here, like, you know, before that time, um, really like uh, merge and integrate well into the culture and, and spend time with them. But, you know, with nomads, unfortunately, what I have noticed in the last few years that, you know, very few people who'd lived here for maybe two or three or four years would speak any word of Indonesian, you know, and the places that they would stay, you might have heard of places like Canggu or some other places. Um, lots of Balinese have moved out from there because it was just becoming uneconomically like viable for them to stay there. Um, land had become so expensive, so it's just all hotels and then stuff coming from other islands to serve it, to, to, to serve all that environment, right? So like they would be coming from Muslim islands and, you know, Christian islands. And so Balinese have kind of moved out and shifted north. So most of the co-working and like the, you know, the nomadic scene happens down south where local arrivals don't really have the opportunity, you know, unless they really look for it to be a part of this beautiful, vibrant, colorful, you know, super interesting culture. And I find that a bit unfortunate. And, you know, I, I would just love for, you know, more people that are coming to Bali for a few years to kind of get to know the Balinese a little bit more than just, you know, beautiful Instagram pictures on, you know, a canyon, because just Bali is just way more than that. Yeah. Yeah. So where would someone go if um, you, you mentioned Ubud, which is uh, around where you are, um, if, if I'm not mistaken, and Chengdu, which I think are like two of the places that a lot of people that if you know anything about Bali, you, you may know those two two names and, and maybe not much more beyond that. And it sounds like you're describing Ubud being more of like a, a bit more local feeling and Chengdu being more of like the nomad scene. If, if I'm incorrect, correct me, please. And then where might be a couple other places on the island that fall into those two categories so that someone who wants the nomad scene can go there or someone who wants to get more of the local, authentic uh, Balinese feel could, could head to that locale. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny that the, the nomad scene has just been such a massive economic boost to the island that um, everywhere is pretty much nomad friendly. But Ubud is definitely, is, is definitely with, with, you know, a place that has the least amount of events and, and sort of like, you know, entrepreneurial circles than Changu. So, you know, if you're looking like to come out into Bali and, and, and build like, I don't know, a, a blockchain dApp or something, you know, and we'll meet like-minded people, there's more chance of you meeting those in Changu, right? So that's like the tech hub, you know, or like the, the blockchain people are there, the the, the um, social media influencer, like uh, tribe is there as well. Ubud is like the healing and detox center, you know, there are two rivers that meet here. Ubud itself actually derives from an Indonesian word, which is obat, which means um, medicine. So, mm. you know, it, it's been a powerful place, like energetically, um, for ages, but it also has a big number of working spaces. So if you're like a yogi, you know, that's also, you know, like working remotely and interested in a bit of a more chilled vibes, then, you know, you could definitely come to Ubud and, and sort of experience all of that, but you don't have the beach. So if you're a, if you're a nomad that loves to surf and, you know, loves to have the beach, then there's another place that's called Jimbaran. Um, and Jimbaran is um, just south from the, from the airport. And uh, it's on a peninsula. The whole peninsula is called the Bukit. And that's a whole different atmosphere there. It's like you just literally arrived to another island. By the way, all these three places, Ubud, Changu, and Bukit, they are um, like completely different places. You know, like Bali, you travel half an hour and the scenery changes completely. So I'm, right now I'm standing looking at this super lush, you know, jungle. But in Bukit, you'll be standing looking at like dried red sand because they have very small rainfall there as well. And it's super hot, but very beautiful waves, like some of the best waves in the world. So that's full of surfers. Again, a ton of really good places to eat and lots of places to stay. And of course, um, co-working in every corner. Um, those are kind of like the three main hubs. Um, but the north of Bali is starting to develop slowly too. And there are some things to see there. Um, there's a beautiful 
fishing village called Ahmed. Uh, it, it's very colorful, but it's especially known for its black sand. Um, it's very close to the volcano, uh, Mount Agung, and black sand has heating, heating properties as well. It has a lot of negative ions. So it's like a, a you know, really nice kind of place just to go and relax, uh, Ahmed. And, um, and we also have these party islands called the Gili Islands, which is basically like the Ibiza of Asia. So if you're into mm -hmm. like, you know, full moon parties, that's just a hour and a half away on a speedboat. And it's not Bali, but it's, it's like everyone who comes to Bali goes to the Gili Islands as well. Yeah. <laughs> it's part of the, part of the experience. Yeah. It's, I mean, similar, you mentioned Ibiza and it's kind of like that in uh, Spain. It's like, it's, it feels I'm in Valencia and it's just, I think it's a 40 minute flight, uh, to, for about $10 to, uh, to Ibiza. And you're like, it doesn't feel much like, it feels like you've just been transported to a whole nother world. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What, you know, it's, you, you, inter you mentioned something that triggered a thought in my mind. That's very interesting to me. There's, there's a ton of islands and you mentioned like people coming from other islands, like Indonesia has got, I don't know, I could be wrong, hundreds or thousands. Like there's a lot of islands but Bali is the one that everybody knows. And you even have these surrounding islands, like you mentioned, where people are coming with their, you know, different religions and different cultures and stuff. So it's obviously very distinct and unique. What do you think it is about Bali that, that sets it apart from, from the rest? And not, not to ask you to say, why is Bali the better than the rest? But I mean, why is it that we all know Bali and the next island in either direction, the majority of the world's population has no idea what it is? Right. Well, um, when uh, the conversion to uh, the Muslim religion was to Islam was taking place, uh, those who didn't want to convert and went Hindu, they, they arrived here. So Bali, ha uh, sorry, Indonesia has something like 14,000 islands in its archipelago. Bali is the only Hindu island, right? So that already sets it aside. Um, number two, I'd say like the modern day infrastructure is the best infrastructure out of all the islands there are, except, of course, maybe the capital city, Jakarta, which is highly polluted. So you have the convenience of, you know, having your ATMs, having amazing fiber optic Wi-Fi, you know, and everything. It's just a convenient way of living in Asia, even like places in Thailand that I that I'd lived in a few places there. They don't have such an infrastructure um, and it's international airport, you know, in proximity to Australia. You have like international flights coming in directly to Bali. Like you don't need to stop over in, at another place and you just you just can't have that right it's again part of the infrastructure that brings people here um but you know once you're right here it's the culture really and the people for me uh i'm not saying that like you know people in other islands are maybe less interesting or more interesting in fact you know i, I was very surprised to see how amazing people are in, in java and just like really really welcoming um but I think like those things combined and, uh, you know, just a lot of interesting foreigners that you'd meet um, from all walks of life, right? So everyone who lives here for a while, they all have like an interesting story to tell, like why, what brought you here? So you're constantly surrounded by just interesting characters. And I, as I'm just comparing myself to London, you know, going somewhere to a social event, um, Everyone was kind of like have similar lives. And then I, I'd, I'd pick out a couple of really interesting people that I would connect with. But here it's kind of different. Like everyone is a wild card. And that, and mm. that, and that for me also is, is definitely one of the strong attractive points. You know, the, the expert community here is just really vibrant. Probably you know, like Costa Rica could compare it to that in some ways. Yeah, that's I think that's something that is like a, a common theme amongst people on this show. And I certainly relate with that. There is just something about like being in a room filled with a bunch of people who are all sort of wild cards. And, and you, you know that you don't know what the next story is going to be. Like somebody's yeah. coming from some place that you're like, I have never even thought about that before. Um, and, and it just it adds a little bit of flavor to life, doesn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. I love that. You know, a lot of crazy people as well in the mix, but you know, I love crazy yeah. people. <laughs> <laughs> the expat community always has like wild card could be the understatement of the, of the uh, year right there with some of the people you meet along the way. You're like, man, I know there's something shady underneath the, uh, underneath the curtain here. We just haven't gotten to it yet. We'll, we'll get there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's uh, it's it's all it's all really interesting and um i think like one of the things that we we love to 
cover on this show is like the how, like, like logistically, how does someone make the move to Bali? Because I imagine like any place, uh, there are rules around how long you can be there on which visa, um, you know, how can you enter and leave? And I always tell my guests, like, I'm not asking you to be a, a visa pro or anything, but I wonder if you could just shed a little bit of light on like what you know about just showing up and staying in Bali. And then if you have any tips for people that want to stay longer, because I know it may not be the same as when you first arrived. I, I su suppose it, it could have changed, but you have the experience of like showing up to a foreign country, getting work, uh, and, and then staying and living, uh, permanently there. So, I mean, that's a, it's not the most typical of, of stories when it comes to, um, digital nomads, people traveling around the world. It's, it's actually quite unique. So I'm very eager to hear uh, a little bit about your experience in that regard. Yeah. Um, well, Indonesia is at the moment, um, very friendly, uh, has very friendly immigration policies. And you can right off the bat get a six-month um, temporary residence stay. Uh, it's it's a social cultural visa. So if you're taking up a course to learn something here, maybe I don't know, like pottery class or maybe even yoga, that goes down as like uh, integrating into the culture. And uh, you get that visa for six months. Uh, you typically have a local sponsor and there are some visa agencies that can provide that sponsor. If you actually don't know anyone in person, that sponsorship is just as easy as a letter of recommendation that they would email you. And uh, you can then go ahead and renew that visa once it expires. Um, you, it's very hard to renew it all the time, nonstop, like for years and years and years, because one of the embassies, when you do your visa run, say you're going to Malaysia to do a visa run, they'll be like, well, you've applied for six months visas for four years in a row. You should get a residency. Uh, to get a residency, you know, you need to open up a company or you need to get sponsored by somebody or like you know, own a business here, those kind of things. Um, so I've been iterating. Um, you know, and I've, I've had some business visas, I've had like temporary work permit, all of those are very easy to get, um, as opposed to like looking at the same applications in, for Thailand or India, which is what, you know, I'd like, I'd looked at in the past and did spend time, some time in India as well. It's way harder. Um, so the, if you have the money, um, it's very easy to do it in Bali. So talk about money that, you know, it's not that cheap uh, as a lot of people think, even though it's, you know, a developing country and it's Indonesia, the prices in Bali are way higher than they are on other price, other islands of Indonesia. And uh, that's a setback for some of the no-bands, you know, they just find it like more cost-effective to be in Thailand. So to give you an idea, an application uh, for a visa like this is around $300. And then you pay uh, every month $70 to maintain this visa for six months. And then you have to fly out and you know stay somewhere for like three, four days, Malaysia or Singapore. So that's already an expense. And plus, you know, accommodation um, starts from like 500 to, to like, you know, 700 for one person, you know, that uh, that's like standard dollars, which is, you know, it's, it, it's, a pre it's pretty decent if you think about it. Um, like, I mean, it's quite expensive if you think about it compared to uh, Thailand or Indonesia, but it's pretty much nothing for the size of property you get if you were to compare it with, I don't know, into Europe in my case. Um, so visa-wise, yeah. it's, it's, it's pretty easy, but, you know, staying here, uh, you're still looking um, at uh, considering the, your monthly budget because um, it's not that cheap as, as some of the other places in Asia. Yeah. Yeah. That is, that's really good to know, I think, because, you know, some people might've traveled in, you know, Cambodia or Vietnam or, or Thailand or something and gotten a feel for, okay, yeah, maybe I can live on X. And, um, when you factor in the visa cost, the visa run, the, the fact that the rent's a little bit, you know, higher, um, it, it does add up quickly. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Uh, and, and, and I think also what it, what happens is that it filters through some, some, some people that, you know, um, aren't really maybe that serious or, you know, they're not really maybe business minded, which is what, you know, the tech community loves that, you know, you're constantly discussing new projects and startups and ideas. And I think that's why you are able to find so many interesting people here. Um, especially like, you know, doing something. And I mean, in, in, in Goa, when I'd spend some time, everyone is just interested to go and, you know, see the sunset and like 
meditate and then go to sleep. So just a, diff a different kind of pace of life as well. So you need to maintain that. <laughs> to, yeah. To, to for living here. <laughs> it's so true. Um, do you know, you mentioned like a couple things about like, uh, that made me think you, you have to get that visa ahead of time. Like you don't get to Indonesia, just, just, you can't just arrive with a, as a tourist and then figure out the visa thing. When you get there, you, you secure it ahead of time and you renew it as, as a backup question to that, you renew it outside of, uh, uh, Bali. Or Indonesia? Yeah, you, you can do both, right? It's, it's actually cheaper to, uh, uh, arrive with this visa in your passport already. So you could okay. contact, you know, via Facebook or, or, you know, any kind of Google search, uh, visa agency in Bali, contact them remotely, you know, and then actually my first visa, they had pro processed it, um, back in 2009. And only when I arrived to Bali, I went into the office to pay them. So I was like, wow, that's a good start. Like people don't trust me like that in London. I have to pay <laughs> up front, you know? Um, so there are agencies that can do this for you remotely. However, um, Bali has an agreement with, I think, most countries of the world um, for a free 30-day visa, uh, which is stamped on arrival. But, so once you get here and that's expiring, you can actually walk into one of these agencies and say to them, look, uh, I'd like to get sponsored um, for the social culture visa. Um, I'd, I'm going to fly out to Malaysia. Can I have the letter? And so you could, you could process it here, but you still have to fly out to have it physically stamped in the embassy. Ah, okay. And then so you go to your local consulate or embassy in, in Malaysia or Singapore or somewhere and actually get the, the renewal visa there. Yeah, that's where they would stamp it. But you can prepare all the documents in Bali with the help of local agents. Cool. Is it is it pretty straightforward? I mean, is it one of those things where like, like some visas are like I got a visa in Ecuador, which was totally just like you just have to basically check a bunch of boxes on a piece of paper and pay $200 and you get your visa for six months. It's not like a question is more just like a little procedure you have to do. And others where it's more like you're applying and they're like, yeah, we'll let you know. And it takes weeks or months. And it's, it's definitely a little bit, uh, a, a little bit nerve wracking because yeah. if it doesn't work out, you could be really screwed. Where does Bali fall on, on that spectrum in this regard? It's pretty easy. Uh, the ma main difference I'd say is that they, they want you to have an outbound ticket and, uh, enough uh, funds in your, bank statement, which is, I believe, mm -hmm. something like $1,500. So if, you, if you've got that, so obviously, um, if you don't have that, then they may ask additional questions like, why are you going to Bali? Are you going to work there? How are you going to sustain yourself? So if you've got those two boxes checked, um, enough funds in your account and um, an outbound ticket from Bali, then um, it's as easy as checking boxes. Sweet. That's great to know. Do you, are they, are they talking about any kind of like a digital nomad visa? Are they trying to profit off of this? Like, like there's a lot of countries that are saying like, you know, actually we, we attract a lot of remote workers and digital nomads. Like that, that wasn't a big part of the global population before, but now it is. And we want our piece of the pie. So, um, they're developing new, new visas for this. And, uh, you know, Bali's like the digital nomad hub spot <laughs> or, uh, hub of the world. So is that, Something that they're looking at, do you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was uh, also going to mention that it's it's uh, it's been an ongoing conversation. I think no one's nailed it. Um, I think the government changes and their interests change, but now in the pandemic, it's become more and more apparent, apparent that you know, well, you've got you've got people leaving to Barbados from here, from Bali. You know, they're going there mm. because they just find it like more attractive and, you know, they can stay there for a year. And so Balinese government has started, Indonesian government, sorry, has started to think about um, if, you know, if we could have nomads come back to Bali, uh, that's huge um, contribution to the economy of the whole country. Um, and so now there are um, some developments in that area. There is a digital nomad visa uh, conversation that's happening and, um, I should know some people who are part of that. I think they're still going through a lot of lobbying. I don't think it's it's it been released or launched, but I, I wouldn't be surprised to see it in action because I've actually been following um, some of their activities on social media and I, and I can definitely see progress in that direction. So it could be very, very soon that we'll hear the news of it coming live. Yeah, I'm, I'm very curious to follow along there because uh, like, for instance, Spain has just launched one. And so the visa that I'm on here is kind of like, it's, it was set up for like retirees and pensioners. And so basically it's like, oh, if you're here on a fixed income, um, which in the past would have been a pension or, or present, it still is used by retirees. 
then you know you can come here but it was developed years and years ago before remote work was a thing or whatever so when you look at a remote worker it's like okay basically the requirements are you're not a criminal you're healthy and you're not going to take a spanish job so you can come here um as long as you have a fixed income coming from outside and that fits the the description of a foreign remote worker perfectly so they let you they the government knows exactly what you're doing but you're using a visa that wasn't really designed for what you're doing so right. now they're developing this digital nomad visa and they've just released it and it's like really disadvantageous for the remote worker people are are all up in arms about it because uh they might have to switch their visa to this digital nomad visa and it's like it's got a lot of drawbacks um uh, and, and like you know kind of frustrating elements to it so anyway it'll be interesting to see if which governments get this right and which ones don't yeah i think there's a lot of pr involved in that because obviously i've i've seen you know lots of publications about the spanish nomad visa which sounded great but i obviously haven't looked into it in as much detail as you have and the last weird information that i heard about balinese sorry I keep saying balinese uh, indonesian um digital nomad visa was that they would need to spend at least $100,000 a year which to any normal person that's like why would i do that why would i commit to coming to bali to spend $100,000 um, right. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's even it's even like cheaper to actually open a foreign owned company and just to have become a director of it. Uh, and you can do that like here just you know as a fresh arrival as well on a tourist visa you can just convert that by opening a company it would be cheaper than going in a nomad visa where you have to spend 100,000. So I think they're still figuring out the terms and conditions but it all sounds great on the PR side of things. Yeah, it does. That's a, that's a cool thing though. So you can just I mean you can come as a foreigner and and start a business there and Yeah. Yeah, yeah no problem cool. about that. You can't own any land or property uh, as a foreigner but, but your company can. Um, gotcha. there are okay. Various types of companies that as a foreign owned company you'd still need to have a partner, ah. a Indonesian partner involved, but a lot of people are going down that route because um like for example I own a house here but it's a 30 year lease and so every day that I live here the value of this house is going down and of course if I was able to buy that land I would have had to put a much bigger investment up front but at least that would have been growing as opposed to falling so if you do have a foreign owned company you can buy it under your company name and a lot of people are doing that ah very interesting okay I was actually I wanted to get to cuz I I knew that you had a home there or at least you've referenced it when we've spoken before about like oh yeah my house here so I figured it was it was yours so you you own it but you have to lease the land basically yeah yeah um previously you were able to do very long leases so in the 90s i think people were foreigners were taking out like 70 80 year leases which is pretty much like freehold i mean yeah. that's as long as you know one generation can live in any property and so now they've decreased it to i believe 25 years So I actually had like two contracts and I extended it for for a further 10 years and that's why I have 30 now but yeah um it was a very long process uh, I must say and a super difficult one to build a house in Bali <laughs> but <somewhere> in the end <laughs> Did you build it? Yeah you, you you actually had it built? Yeah I mean my story is a bit more twisted than that I don't know everything is just like, <laughs> more complicated in my life than it is with other people but I actually like went to another island and I wanted to buy a wooden house so I went into a jungle with an agent and we were looking at these houses that people were still living in but they're like houses on stilts so they cook uh food with a fire inside of this wooden house and then they don't have any radio or any like wifi you know it's just like one light bulb for like the entire village in this forest right like four hour drive deep in the jungle and i, and I like i really like this house so the family actually moved out because they wanted to live in something like a concrete building so i've got this um structure which was very basic and it's just like a house on stilts but really big tall columns like my columns are around about 45 centimeters in diameter and I think 5 meters high and so I imported that into here after finding this house myself and then basically rearranged it a little bit um and so yeah that was super complicated I mean normally you'd come here and you you meet a construction company they give you a catalog and you'd be like I want that one and you'd have a house built in Bali <laughs> in a year but it didn't happen to me that way <laughs> you took the road less travel for <laughs> sure man that is an epic story that might make you the most interesting guest i've ever had on this show just that alone that's insane uh, <laughs> you, worth another you, podcast for sure 
<laughs> you you imported a house from a neighboring island in Indonesia that was currently inhabited deep in a jungle and brought it to your island and put it on stilts. <laughs> That's yeah. mind blowing. I'm absolutely in love with that story. Um, and what's your setup there like now? Is it is it still kind of prim- I mean, you have you're there now. You have Wi-Fi, and so what's is it fairly primitive or is it like you know? No, you got no, all I, the luxuries. I mean, we, we, we made it as 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 luxurious as we possibly could, uh, you know, as possibly we could afford. But it's uh, it's quite big. It's two hundred and twenty square uh, meters of living space, and uh, you know, we have like a really modern kitchen, like a big sofa. And what we've done is like we um, the house is on stilts, so that's because you've got wild animals, right, and live in the forest, and they could just like climb into people's bedrooms. So the houses are a bit raised, and so we raised it even higher on um, concrete stilts and therefore we created two floors instead of just mm. using the, uh, the the space underneath and so all of underneath is just it's like stone and you know um granite and, and and stuff like this but upstairs is still very much like wooden so you have this authentic experience and uh you know you're still very much connected to sort of like where you are um there's a lot of super modern and minimalistic you know villas here in bali and we wanted to kind of like step away from that to preserve some of its uh you know authentic architecture but it's like a blend it's a very comfortable living space you know we it's it's uh we, we love it it's, it's definitely not for everyone uh, uh you know it's an, I, I would say it's an adventure experience house that's what we like to call it um but yeah it's uh it's uh been our home since december and we love it and it's a, it's a work in progress. I mean, like I can't wait to move out from it. So I just stop spending money on it and working on it because every, <laughs> every day there's something that I want to improve and it's just a never ending love, love project with this place. Yeah. That's They say that about your, uh, your home, like the two best days are when you buy it and when you sell it, because you'll in between, you'll just, it'll never be perfect. You'll always find something else you can do. And then the day you sell it, you're like, Oh, well, now it's now it's perfect. I got it set up for the next person, and uh, that that was actually the case for me as well. But that's um, that's an awesome story. I <laughs> I absolutely love that. Um, it seems like you're you're really settled in for the for the long haul. I mean, you know, the future. Who knows what the future holds? Uh, nobody can probably say. Yeah, you know, I'm here for forever. But it seems like for you, Bali is is home now. Is that fair to say? Well, so we, we, we were building this house with the hope that we would have, we'd get eventually a hotel license and move back to Europe because I, I felt like I've been here for too long and um, I like to experience different places. You know, I have lived in a few different countries before moving out to Indonesia too. So I kind of feel I, I'm ready to move on. But now with the pandemic, it's become our home and it's like permanent. So we are now constantly delaying our move back to Europe and most likely now in 2022. So... I don't think it's like I'm going to stay here forever, but Bali is definitely going to be my home because by now, this year, I realized I'd spent here in this country more than in any other country um, in my life. So um, that's it's always going to be a home. Um, Always one foot here. The heart is here, but uh, we're ready to move on. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm excited to move back to Europe. That's a plan that I had before the pandemic that obviously that's been slightly delayed. I remember actually when we when we were talking about the barbecuing over a fire in the Pyrenees uh, several years ago, maybe I don't know five years ago or something. Um, and I recall that that kind of came up, like as you mentioned it right now. I was like, oh, I think you mentioned that before that you were sort of interested in maybe making a move back to Europe. Um, but that had escaped me until until right now. But do you do you have a a place in mind that like kind of calls to you or? Um, like I'm trying to imagine moving from like moving back from the deep jungle in in Bali to to Europe and like what that that like what would be the right transition point to go to because I think if you went back to London it would be just like su- such a drastic change so there, there's there's places that are in between where where do you have your eye on yeah absolutely London would be a, a, quite a shock for me I mean even if I go back to any massive city. Um, Nowadays, I feel like I don't I don't really belong there, so I'm I'm kind of in betweeny of a sort of city town, but that has um, smaller population. And so far, my eyes have fallen on Tallinn, capital of Estonia. Um, mm. My wife is from there as well, and I've been there a few times, and I, I I liked it a lot. Also, it's like quite close to to London, so you know I, I can fly, and it's pretty well connected. But it looks like we're going to be going there. It's extremely cold there, so obviously. 
don't know how long it'll last, but at <laughs> least for that, we'll try it for a year or two and uh, see how it goes. But so far, yeah, that's that's where we're heading to to Tallinn. Estonia. Wow. Wow. Very cool. That, uh, that's a nice little segue actually into kind of, that's a, that's another remote work hub and something we haven't somehow haven't gotten to yet is like you are one of the global leaders, uh, when it comes to the remote work movement and, uh, as a, as the person leading and organizing running remote, which is the largest remote work conference in the world. It's you're, you're kind of right at the epicenter of all that being a, a resident of Bali, uh, running this conference, uh, doing all the advocacy work you do there, and then also uh, considering moving to Estonia, which is one of those other places where people can establish e-residency and all that. So yeah, yeah you're kind of right in the crosshairs of this this remote work world. Uh, it's all through me. I mean, it's all really yeah. like in, in veins, really. And I, you know, of course, running remote started in Bali because it just totally made sense. I think even if I wasn't in Bali, I would still want to organize a first event in Bali. Um, but, you know, we started looking for a European chapter and yeah, I have, apart from my wife being Estonian, I've also went there to see venues and, you know, the whole um, e-residency um, program has been amazing. They've been a, you know, a annual sponsor of the conference and the environment there like is very uh, startup oriented and people really enjoy the, the freedom lifestyle um, conversations. So I'm equally interested to just be there for that as well. And we are thinking of a European chapter eventually. So who knows, you know, maybe, maybe Estonia will will become that place. But um, definitely, I like to, I, th I, th I think that's where I gravitate to places with just more nomads. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you can't, I mean, now that you've been surrounded by wild cards for so long, you can't, uh, you can't just flush that down the toilet and not have it around you anymore. I think it's a bit addicting. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, I do think that, you know, it's, it's just become like such a uh, a big trend right now that it's not, it's not really unique and probably like everywhere will be a place with remote workers. But I, I, I think, you know, the, the founding countries are always going to be leading the way. And uh, I'm, I, I think I've seen um, some new programs that they have released in a digital nomad visa as well in Estonia. And uh, yeah, I'm just like, I'm really curious to see what's happening in Europe and being close to Portugal as well and Spain, you know, and I just, um, yeah, I, I want to be part of that remote work culture as well. Um, so yeah, I'm super excited to move there. Yeah. Is, and are there any aspects of you that are like, like ready to like, is there something about Europe in particular that you're excited to come back to? Like, I, I asked that question because, um, I've mentioned this before on this show, but like, I always kind of had like an infatuation with Europe, the history and the architecture and the, for, for me, one of the big things is just being able to like cross a border and be in a whole different world, you know, like you cross from, you know, France into Italy and it's just like, oh, all of a sudden the language changes, the food changes, the the history changes, you know, the architecture. Um, and that's just mind blowing to me. So is there something about Europe that kind of calls you back? Because the world's your oyster. You could go wherever you wanted. But um, and I know your wife's, you know, from Estonia and you've you've got roots in Europe as well. But is there any aspect of it that's sort of nostalgic and sort of pulling you back in this way? Because Bali's obviously a pretty, pretty uh, glamorous spot to live. So you're, you're leaving for a reason. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be a different, completely different um, life, I guess, where Bali spoils us quite a bit. Um, but uh, what's uh, attracting us there, it's um, definitely like the change of climates. You know, it's 35 degrees in Bali all year round, every day. And so like sometimes a little bit of rain, sometimes a little bit of this. I love snowboarding. Um, I love the change of seasons. Um, I definitely love, uh, you know, hanging out in, in, in the expat culture here uh, more than the Indonesian culture. I mean, I love the Indonesian culture, but nevertheless, you know, we're just so far away uh, from, you know, me being Caucasian and then being here in the equator. And I still feel very much like an outsider here. And that's something that will never be taken away. Even if I spent like 50 years of my life here, I'll never be Balinese. But so in Europe, I kind of feel like I'm more in my plate and we're like surrounded by people, you know, that um, similar kind of thinking. Um, and so uh, the other aspect of it is, is obviously my family, they, they, they live in, in, the, in the UK and I, I just want to see them more often. 
Um, I think uh, probably food is a big one as well for us. Like now you have more and more European products here, like you know, first world products before you can, you can get cheese or like wine here in Bali, but all of this is available now. But food is a big one for us. We're like mm-hmm. big cities, me and my wife. So we are really looking, always talking like, oh, you know, when we went to Europe, like we're going to go to the supermarket and we're going to buy this like ricotta cheese and like, you know, like organic tomatoes and stuff like that's quite <laughs> get here. Um, yeah, but, uh, last, like, you know, boring reason is actually the time zone. Cause I, you know, the conference running remote is, um, very much North American focused, uh, as it has become. And all of my calls are either like 6am or they are like at 9pm. And so basically I'm working all day long because I may have some time in between, but I'm still thinking about work. So I kind of like want to organize my life a little bit better so that then I can have my work hours and have that overlap with the US uh, when I can also spend time you know, with my family in the evening and not, not just spend time in front of the computer all day long. So it's a big one. Yeah, some some really practical reasons to uh, to make a change. And also it sounds like, you know, you, uh, it, it's change is fun. Like change is, is, is exciting. Being in a new place, new group of people, uh, calling a new place home and getting settled in can be, can be pretty, a, a whole new adventure, uh, in and of itself. So, um, I look forward to that for you. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. I love, I love moving places and I, I really feel, um, super hungry for a new place. Like I just feel like I really need to move to a new place and you, you know, you can have as much as you want, uh, um, chocolate cake, but um, after a while it gets boring. And I mean, that's yeah. <laughs> you, want, you want a lemon tart and something similar. <laughs> that's that's a perfect analogy. Um, I I realized we're we're coming up on the the uh, time that I had reserved with you here, so I'm going to let you get going in a second. I just wanted I realized there were a couple things that I didn't really ask, so just kind of like rapid fire, real quick. How important is the Indonesian being able to speak the local language from your perspective? Obviously, you want to respect the locals, um, but for someone who may be thinking, oh, well, I'm, I'm kind of scared to go to Bali because I don't speak Indonesian, how would you, what would you advise them in that regard? I mean, the most Balinese and tourist areas speak English, so you won't have an issue of um, you know, understanding each other, but your life becomes easier if you are able to just say, you know, a few words and even like, hello, and thank you. And please, you will just get, you know, sort of like a different, different approach. And people really, really appreciate that and respect that. So, um, yeah, uh, languages, and it's very easy to learn. It's extremely easy to learn. Uh, they don't have wow. any tenses and you could just like, it's like a puzzle of, you can just put words together and it somehow all makes sense. Um, so it's not, it it doesn't have these tenses or, you know, if it's past or future, it's almost the same way you say that. So yeah, I'd recommend learning a few, but it's not that important. Ah, Okay. Okay. All right. Good to know. And, um, and something else that I'm just curious about, as you mentioned, like Balinese multiple times, like, is there a distinct, like, like, I think this happens with, with island states a lot of times, uh, they, they kind of develop their own distinct culture and identity and maybe don't feel super connected to the mainland. I wonder if, if at all that's the case with Bali. Like, do they kind of see themselves as like, you know, separate from Indonesia or are they, are they Indonesian as much as they are Balinese? Uh, no, they, they, they do feel separate. And I think that, you know, they even had like discussions of just becoming a so- sovereign state. Um, the Balinese are very well known for uh, carving and like craftsmanship. So, you know, they know that they're like celebrity level when they get invited to other islands to teach them. And so they, they know they have a special spot here and they're not giving it up for that. So I, I think it, it's a very strong um, identity for the Balinese. And uh, of course, they, they love the president uh, and they consider themselves Indonesian, but it's, it's extremely strong difference um, on how they see themselves in the world as well. Yeah, I kind of I kind of had that perception and I've been to some other places around the world where it's like, yeah, yeah, we're a part of this country, but you know, we really see ourselves more as as our our island state for or or whatever, you know, there's there's certain states in the US or certain parts of uh countries even here in Europe that that really identify first with their their local region. So, um yeah. that's always really interesting. Awesome. Well, I I will uh I'm going to just turn it over to you for one last comment, if you don't mind, if, uh, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up is, 
if someone were to be planning a you know semi-permanent move to Bali, you know they're not just showing up as a tourist; they want to go and kind of stay for a while. What one piece of advice would you give them um, as they're planning for it, or just wrapping their mind around it, or when they arrive? Is there anything you would leave them with uh, as we as we close out here to to kind of keep in mind? Yeah, you know, like to explore the culture uh, when you get here and uh, just don't get too stuck up with, you know, hanging out with the same kind of people you would back home. And, uh, you know, it's it's really um, it's a world of wonders here. So deep dive and show some respect to foreigner uh, to locals as a foreigner, uh, you know, take care of the environment as, as you do. So um, do attempt to learn something um, in the language as well. I think in terms of just don't have any expectations um expect like that your whatever you plan will go differently so just make as, le- as less plans as possible and bali is the kind of place that will just show you the way so try to be open to go with the flow and lean beyond your age and yeah and once you put yourself out there life is fairly generous so if you do the right things um body can be you know opening an amazing phase in your life for a year or however long you're coming here oh that's super well said um perfect way to to close this out uh, thank you so much, Igor. I, I learned so much in this conversation about Bali, and I'm uh, really hoping I finally get around to visiting sometime soon, hopefully before uh, before you leave. But if not, then you'll be a little bit closer to me here in Europe. So um, and Estonia is another place I need to get to. So we'll we'll cross paths eventually anyway. Um, thank you again. Really appreciate it. Had a lot of fun. Total pleasure, Chase. Uh, you're always welcome here. My house is open. Um, you have a place to stay now. And uh, yeah, I just love talking about Bali. Thanks a lot for bringing me on the show to for an opportunity to share about how beautiful this place is. And uh, yeah, I hope that more people will get discovered in the, in the responsible way. But I wish you all the best and a great day. And yeah, thanks a lot. And again, I can't wait to meet you in person. Yeah, same. Thanks. To thanks again, you. Igor. I think you did a great job uh, selling Bali. I, I'm, I'm sure people are thinking I got to go get there uh, like right now. So if they weren't thinking that already. Um, yeah, thanks again. We'll, we'll speak soon. Speak soon. Bye, Chase. Thanks for tuning in today from wherever you are in the world. Once again, I'm Chase, and this has been another episode of About Abroad. For those of you wondering how you can best support the show, I have made it super simple for you. Just go over to the show notes of the episode that you just finished listening to and click on one of the two following links. Aboutabroad.com slash newsletter to get our monthly newsletter. No spam, guaranteed. Or ratethispodcast.com slash aboutabroad where you can quickly and easily leave a review for the show. It's not just important to me. It also helps more wanderers just like you find us. Finally, don't forget to subscribe on your podcast platform of choice, and we will see you again next week. Thanks again. Hasta luego, amigos.